Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Francisco Weber, co-founder and CEO of Cortical, which is trying to move AI technology beyond computational statistics and enable machines to read paperwork and even unstructured emails as natural language. Francisco, thanks for joining us. Uh, Hello, thanks for having me. Now, the problem your technology addresses is the difficulty machines have in reading unstructured data. Can you tell us how you've solved that problem? Yeah, so um, it's all about figuring out what uh, uh, text uh, mainly, which is produced by people, um, actually means. Uh, So much of our um, business tasks basically is... uh, reading a piece of text uh, come, might come from an email or uh, within a document and then uh, understand what's written there uh, and react basically and do whatever's uh, necessary. Uh, and that's precisely uh, where our technology comes in and basically helps humans uh, to not only read faster, but also to understand faster and uh, sort of uh, render the uh, the, the, the business is more e- efficient, basically, by uh, being able to ingest uh, more information. Yeah. So you're not just doing sort of keyword matches, you're actually reading natural language. In yeah, so, uh, absolutely. So uh, uh, matching uh, the occurrence of words is basically the, the kindergarten version of uh, uh, natural language processing, if you want. Uh, that uh, basically comes uh, um, comes in historically. That's how we uh, started to figure out uh, what a piece of text means. Uh, but nowadays, uh, specifically for uh, all these uh, tasks uh, at hand, which uh, appear in a, a digital workspace, um, that's not enough. So uh, it needs really uh, to, that needs to be an understanding that uh, uh, Ferrari is actually a, a red sports car. Uh, and therefore has a certain number of contexts and uh, uh, plausible um, um, items uh, around it. Uh, And that cannot be done by just uh, covering uh, long lists of uh, if that word appears, then this uh, could relate to this or that. Uh, So that's uh, basically the problem we try to solve with our technology. Now, now the word Ferrari is the same in any language, but we as human beings, we speak a great many different natural languages. We speak English, French, German, Spanish, mm-hmm. Italian. Is, is that a problem for your technology? Well, that's uh, precisely one of the reasons why uh, it's more important to focus on the meaning because uh, the meaning sort of uh, does not depend on language. Uh, so uh, a red sports car in terms of meaning means the same thing if I give it a French name or an English name or, or, or a, speci- uh, a Spanish name. Uh, So the point is precisely to go beyond uh, that, what we call the externalization of meaning, which is a specific language, uh, which uh, is supposed to encode it properly. So uh, in principle, um, anything that, uh, uh, any approach, uh, basically, that would allow you to understand what uh, is written in an email uh, needs to be um, independent of language. Uh, And it even becomes worse. I mean, nowadays, uh, the standard e- email, uh, at least, uh, let's say, in the non-genuinely uh, English countries, 
uh, typically has even a mix of languages. So we, we, we are supposed to write a German uh, email, uh, but I'm pretty sure in the average email you find like uh, five or ten words, uh, probably in English. Um, and so uh, the whole point is precisely uh, to go beyond uh, the specifics um, of, of, of an encoding, if you want, uh, which would be um, a language like English. Yeah. And are you able to translate the languages? In other words, if a team is multilingual, there are some Italian, some Spanish, some French, some English, because they're dealing with clients who speak those languages, are you able to deliver the content to them in their so, primary so we, we, we rather try to avoid this. Uh, what we actually want to do is to distill the meaning uh, and by uh, um, sort of uh, uh, understanding the meaning, we give the right context. So uh, just imagine, um, let's say, um, a, a person who is not an English uh, speaker um, needs to search through a collection of contracts, uh, which are all in English. Uh, and you know the problem, uh, you have to formulate a proper query uh, to sort of expect to get something useful. Uh, and uh, if you need to uh, do that kind of formulation in a language uh, which is not your primary language, uh, you're handicapped. Uh, so how much uh, better would it be, um, let's say if you're a German speaker, to actually say that you formulate your query in German, uh, the system uh, digests out uh, the uh, meaning of what uh, is uh, sort of uh, uh, described in German and then matches that meaning with the meaning of all the documents which happen to be in English. Uh, and once that user uh, uh, gets back those English documents which are relevant, so a, a human typically uh, figures out fairly quickly um, if a bunch of documents make sense or not. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a, a new skill uh, that has uh, become standard uh, um, today. Um, so uh, the English, as I said, of this non-native speaker might be enough to actually understand the document, but uh, it's a bit cumbersome maybe uh, to formulate a query accordingly. So being able to cast, um, uh, in that case, a German uh, query and then get meaningful uh, or contextualized um, English documents back would be such a case. And there is no point of, of uh, needing to translate. That's uh, what we have done uh, a, a couple of, of, of uh, years ago, um, where we have done precisely uh, these kinds of things to either translate the query and then match it. Uh, but the problem then is that if you have not properly chosen um, your terms, um, uh, they get a bad uh, translation, uh, uh, and as a consequence, you get uh, not so good uh, results back in the search. But if you do the matching at the level of the meaning, uh, you can be sure um, to actually get um, the right results. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a, a handful of, of practical examples of, of industries, companies where your technology has actually been deployed, ideally in the financial services industry? Yeah, so um, um, if you want uh, basically uh, anyone who does business uh, by using a computer means uh, somehow uh, digital information uh, can make use uh, of our products. Uh, but of course, there are uh, specific industries like, like the financial industry, for example, uh, that have uh, sort of a, a very big reason uh, simply for the fact that uh, the products, if you want, 
are actually language. Yeah? So uh, in fact, a bank or an insurance company, when they sell something, uh, they sell a document basically, which happens to be typically a contract uh, where uh, the actual profile uh, of the product is described yet again in language. Uh, so if you want uh, to have uh, the possibility to interact with your products and to allow your customers to interact with your products uh, in a, I would say, amplified way, amplified in the sense that uh, you get the help uh, of a system to, 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 to make basically your buying or your selling more efficient, uh, then uh, technology around language uh, becomes uh, relevant uh, at many different levels. And that's basically the reason why we have observed uh, right after sort of exposing uh, our technology to the market a couple of years ago, uh, that precisely the financial industry were sort of suffering the biggest pain uh, in that uh, context. And they were uh, sort of the, the most early adopters uh, you could imagine in, 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 in trying to see how that can be used. And uh, that basically led also to um, our products uh, uh, around contracts uh, in one uh, domain, uh, which is sort of uh, the, um, the, the, the business transaction and uh, the product related uh, information, but also emails, uh, which is the main way of how uh, people communicate uh, with their bank and, and their insurance when they communicate in a written form. Um, of course. Yeah. So you, 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 you've got banks and insurers using your technology today? Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and of course, uh, this uh, typically starts where you have a lot of repetitive uh, work come in. Uh, so, for example, uh, for reviewing large collections of, let's say, credit agreements, you know, I mean, there is a, a constant change in the regulations. You have constantly to go back and uh, revisit uh, your existing contracts. Do they still comply with the new IRFS uh, regulation and so on? So you actually need uh, someone who is really educated in the domain because there has to be, of course, some understanding of, of what the issue is. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you ask those people uh, to actually do a highly repetitive uh, work, which a typical human hates uh, basically to do. Um, and so there is precisely the problem uh, that uh, you need to have highly skilled people uh, do repetitive work. Uh, and what I keep telling um, customers when they sort of come, come into contact uh, uh, with our technology the first time, I say, yes, of course, a, uh, let's say um, an experienced attorney in, in the banking uh, area can review a contract and you can be sure that you get a close to perfect answer. Yeah. So if it's about uh, uh, finding out uh, what the termination clause is, for example, so, yeah? so you can expect to, to get a perfect answer from a human. Uh, if you ask the same human um, to uh, work his way through, uh, I don't know, 100,000 contracts, uh, I can guarantee that the quality uh, that human is able to uh, to provide uh, will be dramatically lower. Yeah? So there will be a lot of errors and uh, uh, a lot of sort of inattention um, issues that come in. Uh, so when uh, we often say, um, how precise is uh, uh, the algorithm? Is it capable of actually replacing in terms of uh, qualifying a certain information? Is it able to replace a human? I say, uh, probably not if it comes to handling uh, one or two contracts uh, a year. Uh, but uh, precisely, once you start to have volume, 
then humans tend rather to be an impediment, sort of. Uh, and that's uh, precisely where uh, it makes sense to provide those humans with a tool uh, that, that, that takes away uh, basically the boring part of the job and uh, keeps them what is actually needing their precise um, experience um, and, 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 and uh, expertise. Yeah. The way you're describing it, it makes it sound as if the machine is kind of complementing the work of the, the human beings, but it's also making it possible for those human beings to do things they couldn't do before, which is like read those hundred thousand contracts. Exactly. Very, I mean, very quickly. The, so so uh, it, it is what's happening here. Actually, they're, they're able to do, they don't lose their jobs. They're actually mm -hmm. able to do more and more interesting work and deliver more value to their company because of the machine. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's what uh, tools are about in general. I mean, we are uh, sort of uh, humans are precisely able to create tools to make their lives uh, easier. Uh, and that uh, doesn't mean in principle that uh, the job doesn't need to be done anymore. Uh, or that uh, that human uh, will not uh, have a job. I think uh, it just makes a difference if you have um, adequate tooling and machinery for doing your job uh, more professionally. Um, and as we know, as I said, uh, uh, repetitive work is the worst uh, you could ask of a human. Uh, uh, I think it, it has to do with uh, the quality of work um, also. And if you compare, uh, I don't know, uh, take any consumer product, uh, how that has been produced 100 years ago uh, and how, how it is produced today, there are still people producing that kind of stuff, but they are doing it differently, uh, less harmful maybe to their health and to their uh, sort of uh, uh, work-life balance uh, and so on. Uh, and jobs, I think, historically uh, have been changing all the time. Whenever there was a new sort of technique or tool or whatever in whatever domain uh, came up, uh, it transformed the jobs that were necessary to do, especially in, in times when uh, uh, the, the classical machine was not available. Uh, basically, human bodies were used uh, to become machines. Yeah, so... I'm not sure if that's the kind of job where you need to be sorry if, if it doesn't need to be done anymore. I mean, there are so many jobs uh, I would not like to do them because they are just not um, yeah, satisfying as, a, as an activity. And I think that's what uh, our tools are supposed uh, to do is, is to increase the efficiency. It's all, all the, the progress, I think, uh, circles around the concept of getting more efficient uh, basically uh, capturing more sunlight uh, and make use of it. That's basically what, uh, what, what the intelligent uh, uh, organisms on this planet are doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you've used the word efficiency. I was, was listening to you, I was wondering where the cost savings are going to come from. If you've got the same workforce uh, mm -hmm. in place, they're actually doing more and more interesting work and maybe higher value work. Mm. In the short term, I expect most of the companies you talk to would also like to see some cost savings and have less people working for them. Mm. So where do the cost savings come from, setting aside the, the value they add? Uh, I think... How, where do the I, cost savings come from? It, it comes from uh, sort of two aspects. One is, of course, um, that you can save uh, uh, tiring, uh, repetitive work um, of people. So you don't need to uh, uh, put people uh, at certain tasks. Um, the other thing is you can, you can actually finally 
uh, reach uh, a more complete level. Uh, I mean, uh, because the truth is, um, if, for example, um, a company needs to uh, review 100,000 uh, credit agreements every year um, to sort of limit the liabilities and the fees they have to pay whenever uh, there is an error in their compliance uh, 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 status, um, I, I would say even the, the most professional large banks, they cannot do 100% uh, of the work through, truly. Uh, what they do is they try to do enough of it so that uh, chances for being fined are sort of managed uh, and, and so on. So it's in, in, in practice, I don't think that um, automating some of these processes will actually make people lose their, their job. I think there is a big buffer of tasks that finally can be done by 100% and not uh, like they have been used to do for 60% and the remaining 40%, let's hope for the best. Uh, so every 10 years we get fined uh, because uh, we are probed in precisely those 40%. So that kind of, uh, um, of, of, of sort of uh, calculation comes in. Yeah? I, I think it's a highly optimized um, sort of view of things of uh, saying that, yeah, the review has been done by people before and now we are automating and we don't need the people anymore. Uh, I think reality is uh, we have been using people to do 60% uh, of the work that we should do. Uh, and now finally, uh, we can do the 100% uh, with uh, a high degree of quality, uh, probably with the same uh, number of people. Yeah. All right, I see. So the benefits include picking up revenue you would have missed in the past, avoiding regulatory fines uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it. D tell me, how difficult is it for a company to implement, to deploy this technology? Get it from the cloud or is it an incredibly complex implementation of hooking it up to internal systems and offshore service providers and so on? How easy is it to install? So um, our uh, sort of main goal is precisely uh, by leveraging the, the, the capabilities of our technology um, to allow people who are not um, AI experts uh, to basically take the driving seat uh, and train models. I mean, that sounds uh, sort of um, uh, a, a bit contradictory with, with what normally uh, is seen, where uh, whenever you introduce uh, some AI and some business domain, you have large teams of uh, experts uh, and, and subject matter experts who need to work together. And what we found is that the practical implementations of functions uh, like this uh, usually suffers that uh, issue that you have to teach a person who is a specialist in AI uh, about some business process um, um, by a person who is not a specialist in AI. Yeah? So there is this whole loss of translation issue you have here. Um, and so um, our goal is basically to have systems where a subject matter expert, um, for example, um, a, a legal expert, financial expert, they can actually directly use their expertise and capture it in models based on data that they work with. Like if they happen to, let's say, review contracts, then uh, we have the system uh, watch them um, annotate or um, sort of work through a couple of those contracts. And while the expert does this, uh, the system builds up uh, a model that uh, sort of uh, starts to make suggestion what should be annotated next and it becomes smarter and smarter um, as you go. 
Um, and uh, the fundamental difference with what is on the market right now is that um, a, our users don't license um, a machine model like it used to be normally, um, but they build their own models and they own those models and they can use it and reuse it um, uh, um, uh, as much uh, as they want. And uh, they can create a model for whatever uh, they want. So it's not just a, a, a one-shot solution for uh, uh, finding out the IRFS compliancy of a contract, uh, uh, sort of the, the analytics, but you get a system that can do any kind of analysis based on the subject matter experts uh, that you actually have. Yeah. Is it is it therefore a, a, a native cloud installation, if you like? Uh, no, it's 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 actually um, very traditional sort of. Uh, it's a piece of software. Yeah. So right. you can have a piece of software that runs um, on a computer, and if you for some reason have uh, decided to have your computers in the cloud, then it runs in the cloud. Uh, if you are a, a more uh, classy um, um, enterprise, you might want to have it run uh, on-premise on, on your business servers you have in your infrastructure. Uh, so that's uh, the only requirement. Um, and we make use, of course, of today's uh, technology of um, sort of virtualizing those applications so that you can literally use them out of the box. You have a, an image um, uh, of a virtual server that you can implement on any practical server. So it, it's probably a, a matter of hours uh, to get up and running. Okay. And if you're not selling licenses, how, are you, how do you get paid for we, we, we do sell licenses, of course, but it's uh, very traditional uh, software licenses that can be sort of uh, put to any um, um, IT infrastructure that you might have. But it's a user-based license, so more people use it. Um, it, it depends on the uh, application. So we have um, sort of three uh, main application. One is... Um, looking into documents and finding specific content in documents. Uh, the second one is um, analyzing and understanding messages like email or uh, tweets uh, or, or uh, uh, social media comments or so. <clears throat> and the third one uh, is actually searching. Yeah. So most of the companies have repositories of documents and they need uh, to have an efficient way in locating uh, where that information is. Um, so it depends um, um, which uh, of the domains for uh, uh, the contract side, for example, it's based on the number of contracts you want to manage uh, with uh, the system. Now, you've spoken of being inspired by, by neuroscience, and I think that, that may even be your, your personal background. I'm yeah. interested by that because as I look at the history of AI, I think of people in the 1950s thinking the way to build an intelligent machine was to mimic the human mm -hmm. brain. That became a dead end. Uh, and in a way, AI died, I suppose, in the 70s and even into the 80s. And then once all this data starts to get digitized and computing power becomes cheaper and cheaper, people rediscover uh, that you mm -hmm. can actually get some interesting results by throwing lots of processing power, lots of piles of mm -hmm. digital data, and they call it AI. But you, yeah. you know, there are not many AI websites I visit talk about being inspired by neuroscience. That sounds, that sounds like the, the previous generation. So tell us a bit more about what you mean by that. Uh, yeah, so first of all, we are actually not just inspired by neuroscience, but we uh, literally try to implement in the uh, informatics domain 
uh, what we have learned um, in the neuroscience domain. Um, so the reason, and, and you're right uh, by saying that the early AI was precisely uh, aiming to become somehow like uh, the human brain. The problem with this was uh, that uh, in the 50s uh, of the last century, uh, we comparably uh, knew very little about the brain. So the problem was not so much what has been uh, achieved or not achieved uh, by AI, but uh, the thing we tried to model uh, was basically uh, heavily incomplete. Uh, so uh, um, neuroscience was always sort of uh, split into different kind of approaches. There were the guys who tried to find out uh, how do the neurons actually work? Yeah, so the basic component um, um, of of the uh, of the nervous system. Uh, others uh, tried to find out about the connectome. So which neuron is linked up with what other neuron? Um, and uh, very recently only, uh, neuroscientists started uh, to go more in the direction of what I would call information science uh, approach. Uh, so how is the brain actually doing the computation given the infrastructure I have there? Uh, because, uh, of course, I need a physical implementation, let's say, of a processor. Uh, and as we know, uh, that's done uh, with neurons. But the actual computation, the math, if you want, uh, is not depending on the neurons in the sense that the neurons happen to be a, kind, a way of implementing this, uh, which nature had at hand. Yeah? But there is, let's say, the more abstract uh, concept, for example, which was a starting point for, uh, for our early work. Um, how is the meaning of something actually represented? So in the domain of uh, machine learning, people were mostly thinking in terms of algorithms. What's the formula that I have to pipe my data through that I get something useful? Um, and people did not um, consider so much uh, the question precisely, how, it is, how is it actually represented? How, where, there has to be a place somewhere in my brain where when I hear the word cat, um, something catish um, appears. Um, and when it appears, uh, how does it look like? Uh, out of what kind of signal is it built and so on? And uh, there has been, um, um, especially as I said, in the recent years, a lot of science um, uh, done around this. Um, so to me, very influential was the work uh, of, of Jeff Hawkins, who was precisely uh, working in that field on finding out how the neocortex, which is sort of the part of the brain which actually thinks, um, how does that actually do the information processing? How, how does it work? Um, and interestingly, um, we were focusing very strongly on that question of representation of information. Interestingly, if you uh, read up the very early papers uh, in AI, uh, that used to be the big question then. So there are uh, uh, famous uh, scientists who said things like, um, if someone finds out how information is represented uh, behind language, then that will solve our AI problem, because that's in fact what the big problem is. And um, the, the, the recent uh, sort of popularity um, um, came up um, as we realized um, that we, on one hand, don't actually know how the word cat is represented in the brain. Uh, but whenever we don't know something in science, we start with statistics. 
Okay, um, and it turned out that statistics also is useful uh, in the context um, of characterizing language. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, language does have a number of statistical aspects, but the problem is you cannot fully um, describe language by using statistics. And that's precisely that sort of uh, degree of incompleteness uh, that basically makes the, the language AI systems uh, so poor uh, compared to a four-year-old uh, per real person um, uh, in, in contrast. Um, yeah, so we, what we, yeah. But, but, but a four-year-old, as you pointed out, a four-year-old, you show them a, a cat and then they mm -hmm. score the pattern cat somewhere in their mind. And you could be any type of cat, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a lion, a tiger, a, a cat chasing Mickey Mouse, whoever it is, and they, they recognize that as a cat. Mm -hmm. um, so do you, do you feel with the work that you're doing, you're moving towards making machines conscious? Are you tackling what's called the hard problem? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> conscious, consciousness in that context um, is, is a, a, a big concept, of course. Um, I definitely think that uh, working on uh, language and how language works uh, finally will have a contribution to this. I mean, obviously, uh, at least for human consciousness, uh, language plays a role. Uh, so I do think uh, that uh, uh, there is a, a link there, but to be honest, it's not one of our sort of immediate goals, <laughs> of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, we would be happy uh, if we could uh, properly simulate uh, a four-year-old, four uh, even uh, without with leaving um, consciousness out. I mean, there are so many uh, really impressive uh, skills uh, that humans have around language. Uh, that yeah, there will be a lot of use uh, if we start um, um, having uh, having those aspects um, covered. Um, and to be honest, I think that language can also become key in actually understanding how the brain works. Yeah? Uh, the structure that language has uh, actually relates to the structure of the brain. Uh, so knowing better, for example, um, um, how language is handled in the brain will definitely teach us uh, important um, aspects uh, about uh, actual really real cognition and, and cogni uh, uh, cognitive capabilities. Uh, so I think uh, it can, to some degree, linguistics could become a new branch of brain science, uh, if you want, uh, by going the way back from saying that's something we have understood in language, uh, and we know how language is actually uh, cast uh, in the uh, uh, neocortex. So we can do certain number of um, sort of uh, derived inferences and so on uh, on how things happen uh, to work in the brain. Yeah. So you can derive meaning from computational statistics. Uh, you, and as a result, you can read natural language words. We, of course, think in words. Mm. So from the process of, of computational statistics, applied to, to words, you can actually start to get some idea of how a conscious brain uh, uses uh, words to uh, absolutely to now. Absolutely. The, the shortcomings of statistics, uh, on the other hand, is uh, the problem as we don't specify how things are rendered, uh, we have by uh, using statistical approaches 
to try all possible combinations. Yeah? So the problem of statistics is that you have always huge combinatorial spaces. Uh, so uh, if we hear the word cat, um, we don't know what actually the word means, but statistically we can look at all the sentences where the word cat appears and what other words came uh, along. And we just make huge tables of all the words that can be uh, close uh, to the word cat. Uh, and we derive some form of number of how that distribution is. And that is precisely um, the problem of statistics is it's incredibly inefficient. Uh, and interestingly, um, our brain is characterized uh, precisely the other way around for being highly efficient. Uh, and that is uh, basically what we have found out also in practice. Um, it's not the precision, the achievable precision of a, um, a uh, AI algorithm that makes it successful or not um, in the wild, uh, on the market, sort of. Uh, it's actually uh, the efficiency. Because uh, one aspect, for example, is that if you create a model you have to recompute it, test it, refine it, recompute it. If, it. if your algorithm is not efficient and computing a model takes uh, a week, uh, there will be far less cycles of refinement that you will be able to do. So even if the algorithm in principle would allow you to achieve, let's say, 95% uh, 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 precision, you never reach that because it would take, I don't know, 300,000 uh, uh, years uh, to actually get there just by the, by the processing effort you need to do. Um, on another hand, uh, an algorithm that has a potential precision of maybe only 94%, but that takes you only uh, 25 seconds uh, to compute, you will actually achieve those 94%, which in, in the end will be higher than whatever you could have achieved uh, with a more precise um, algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, and that basically uh, was, uh, I mean, it sounds simple if you hear it now, but if you are in the midst of business and, and, and trying to craft a product uh, that uh, has some uh, success, it took, quite a, it took quite a while to realize that uh, chasing precision is the wrong strategy um, in, in AI. You have to uh, look for high efficiency AI. That's actually key for real world um, implementations. Mm. I'm getting a very clear idea now of how a relatively inefficient, iterative computational process complements the mm. highly efficient uh, leap to the conclusion human brain. Mm. That's why machines and, and humans work together so successfully. You're expressing that very mm -hmm. clearly. One, one last question, um, Francisco, which occurs to me, listening to everything you've said, do you feel that your business is, is positioned somewhere in a transitional stage in the development of, of AI? And I'll ask you something very specific here, which is that your, your company is set up to read unstructured documents. What if all data was structured? What if we had a lot of data standards? Would that make your company uh, unnecessary and force you to move on to, to the next stage of AI? What difference would data standards actually make? Um, so if you mean structured uh, in terms do, of yeah, data I mean, that, is, data. Yeah. that is in databases, um, uh, first of all, you have the other problem. Um, how do you get all that structured information in? Uh, yet again, uh, a use case where you probably will need some uh, machine to help you, um, then 
when we say unstructured, for example, for language that happens just to be written uh, by a human, uh, it's unstructured in terms of not being a database, uh, but it's highly structured uh, if you consider things like grammar, for example. Yeah? And the meaning is actually captured um, in precisely grammar, syntax, and all these uh, things that relate uh, to linguistic. Um, in the end, we need a representation of the world that is as close as possible to the structure of the real world. That's the actual reference structure. Um, and that structure we realize can be so complex uh, that our uh, poor human minds often call it unstructured. Uh, but in fact, it's always highly structured. I mean, unstructured information would be like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you probably remember in the old times uh, when you uh, started your TV after the hours and you had this kind of snowy, uh, that's actually unstructured uh, um, 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 data. So uh, I think uh, that uh, we will always need to convert information from one structure to the other. Uh, in, in some way, and therefore, um, all the work we do in informatics about uh, figuring out how to do that efficiently um, will be uh, relevant for quite some time, I think. Are you saying that all digitized information as opposed to analog information is in effect structured in some way? Yeah, it has been sampled. So uh, once it's sampled, it has at least uh, the structure of your sampling uh, mechanism. Uh, but we humans, uh, we can only uh, conceive structured information. If I give you a page full of text uh, that is not respecting any grammatical rule, uh, you probably have a hard time figuring out what's written there. Um, so the point is, we have um, to adapt the machines to the structures that are there in data actually, and not uh, try to translate uh, the real world uh, in something like a, a, a highly simplistic structure of a database record. Yeah. I'd love to throw your machine at uh, the novels of James Joyce or episodes uh, of, of The Wire uh, to, yeah. uh, to put to the test that all language is, is structured in a way that's, that's understandable. Anyway, uh, Francisco Weber, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me.